97% of UPS Teamsters cast their ballot in favor of authorizing what would be a massive and historic strike, demanding an end to two-tier wages, more full-time work, better wages, and decent conditions. The 360,000 union workers at UPS have the power to shut down a company that has become central to U.S. and global commerce. If there is no agreement, the strike is set to begin at the end of next month. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy and to the working class. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, let's just frame this discussion about the looming strike if there is one, with the Teamsters at UPS. The contract between the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and United Parcel Service will expire at the end of July. Much has been written about the labor upsurge, Richard, in recent years from Starbucks organizing across the country to the wave of unionization among academic workers to the significant public sector strikes in K-12 through and higher education. And it's quite clear that there is a real potential now in the 2023 for the revitalization of the labor movement in the United States. What we have not yet seen in recent years is organized labor taking action in a way that affects the ability of the entire economy to function at the national level. But with this strike, that may be about to change. Anyway, let's get started. Well... I think the best way to get into this is to talk a little bit and in all honesty about the pluses and the minuses of what is going on. Absolutely, it's a plus that the workers at UPS voted 97% to authorize a strike. It shows that the working class in the United States is understanding more than it has in recent years, that it is up against it and it has to use the tools that are available to it, one of which is a strike. And that's all to the good. That shows a labor movement beginning to to rear its head, to feel its muscles, and to engage in the struggle without which working people will be in tough shape. 
and I want to salute those who have won because either they've struck or they've threatened to strike in the way that UPS's Teamster voters did. And just to give you an idea, about a week ago, less than, the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union, who uh, run the docks in California, Washington, Oregon, and so on, settled. They had had a half-job action, half-strike. They have not had a contract since July of last year, 2022. They waited through the negotiations, which the employers stalled over and over again. And they finally reached a contract last week. And according to the Wall Street Journal, it provides for 32% increase in wages. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like a lot, and it is compared to what so many other workers are settling for and have been settling for. They get 10% in the first year and then 2% a year in the remaining five years. It's a six-year contract. They do also get a bonus, a hero bonus for the work that they did during the pandemic, keeping the goods coming in, particularly from Asia, that kept us supplied with goods during the pandemic. But let's take a look, a little closer look. Well, before I do, let me mention that these settlements are now becoming normal. I'll give you an example. Over the last few weeks, FedEx workers settled for a 30% increase. Delta Airlines workers settled for a 34% increase. Spirit Airlines settled for a 34% increase. And these are usually four, five, six-year contracts. So it sounds sizable, and it is, and it's better than most other workers are getting. But now let's take a closer look. The current inflation rate in this country is about 5%, according to the government. Over the last 18 to 24 months, it's been higher than that, closer to 10%. So for the union to catch up with a 10% in 2023 is doing exactly that. It's catching up to what prices have risen to be which means the standard of living of workers who are getting a 10% increase this year is about the same as it was last year because the extra 10% in their wages is going to have to be spent on the higher prices of the goods. And then to get 2% per year for the next five years, uh, the contract at the uh, Longshoremen ends in 2028, well, 2% is the inflation rate that the Federal Reserve is aiming to achieve in the United States. And if prices go up 2% per year for the next five years, and workers' wages go up, as this contract says, 2% a year, then the workers will not have an improvement in their standard of living. Even though the productivity of their work has risen, even though their employer companies have earned record profits, they're being told that they have to go on strike or threaten strike or do job actions for nothing better than staying even with the inflation. Yes, that's better than most workers are doing who are not doing better than inflation or even equal to inflation and who are therefore falling behind. 
Many, many employers are offering no increase, and many more are offering increases in the 1% to 3% rate. And if prices are going up, let alone the risk that they may go up faster in the years ahead, well, then these workers, impressive as their militancy now is, are still in the stage of being militant to be left at the same standard. And let me remind everyone, over the last 30 years, the gap between the super rich and average working people has gotten worse. And that gap is not being narrowed by contracts like this one. And so my hat's off to the UPS. They will do better because they strike or they threaten to strike than if they didn't dare do that. But if what they want and if what their members want is a better standard of living to be able to afford the wealth that this country produces, they're going to have to do a good bit more in order to realize the advance they have been waiting for and doing without for quite some years now. Richard, one of the big, big issues in this contract and one of the big issues in industrial size labor contracts over the past couple decades was the creation of what amounts to a two-tier system. Two tiers mean that the older workers, the workers who have seniority, have a high level of pay, higher level of pay than the new hires. And as a result, what's happened as the labor movement weakened over the decades, the bosses came back, employers came back, including the big ones, including UPS in the 2018 contract, and created and, and imposed on the union a two-tier system. So part of the membership was doing quite well because their wages had at least stayed up with you know, the cost of living, or if they hadn't stayed up, they hadn't fallen as far back. But the differential in pay between a driver who's got seniority, who's been there 20 years, and a driver who's been hired in the last five years, it's a profound difference. I mean, I talked to an older Teamster worker in New York, and he was actually against the strike because his wages were, well, they were pretty good by working class standards. In 2018, there was a contract signed, and it, it's really the core, I'd say, of this labor dispute, so far at least, between UPS and Teamsters. And I want to explain to the audience exactly what it is. I can do it briefly. A route to a sustainable full-time work in UPS remains a core contract issue in this struggle, one that is more broadly felt following the controversial provision of the 2018 labor contract. That provision created a new category of package car driver known as 22.4 in reference to the contract article creating this classification. The current Teamsters leadership regards the creation of the 22.4 position as the launch in UPS of a two-tier system and that, of course, creates a tremendous incentive for management to get rid of older workers, to keep hiring younger workers who are making lower pay. And it also breaks up the solidarity of the membership. And so we have here, Richard, a big part of the contract struggle is to get rid of these two tiers, meaning all the workers are in the same job classifications, 
based on the job they're doing. Now, I'm just seeing a, a brand new article came out in the last day or two. UPS agrees to add air conditioning to trucks. The delivery company UPS and a union representing workers have reached a tentative agreement to add air conditioning to trucks that could help avoid a possible national strike that workers have threatened. UPS said in a release Tuesday that it reached an agreement with the Teamsters Union to implement, quote, heat safety measures, close quote, for workers. It said the company agreed to equip all newly purchased small package delivery vehicles in the United States with air conditioning starting on January 1st, 2024. The new vehicles will be provided to the hottest parts of the country where possible. And then the company said, Richard, I love this one. We care deeply about our people and their safety remains our top priority. Heat safety is no exception. Wow. So it takes the threat of a strike by 360,000 workers over a contract dispute that's got wages, it's got benefits, but it's also got the struggle to eliminate the two-tier and you can see the company now giving these concessions, which sound meager. But of course, if you're driving 10 hours a day, not having air conditioning in a hot place, that's a big thing. Obviously, they're trying to convince some, and I would say the older drivers, don't strike, don't care about the younger drivers. You're going to get some important concessions here. Again, this is a whole test of labor solidarity, sort of a core principle, of course, for socialists that an injury to one is an injury to all. We have to stick together in order to be strong. But this is the challenges now facing industrial size labor unions. Go ahead. Well, I think the first thing to, to add to what you say is that employers are simply gaming the system. The reason two tiers, the fundamental reason two tiers has become a, an employer strategy is because the people who vote on a new contract that has a second tier in the way you described, the people who vote are not the ones who will suffer from the two-tier system. In other words, the people who vote are already working there. They're not the new hires that will be offered a much lower wage. So you've got to vote by the people who are not impacted, and they can vote to open a new tier, which means new hires, not the people voting. The new hires who don't have a vote yet because they haven't been hired yet will get paid less. You know what it shows you more than everything else? The wisdom of old Karl Marx that the history that we are living through is the history of class struggle, because that's all that this is. The endless effort of the employer to get around doing anything for the worker, paying the worker, equipping the worker properly, making the worker safe. Think about what you just read to us. Our number one priority is the safety and health of our workers. If it were, you would have installed air conditioning decades ago. It was pure cheapness on the UPS employer part that makes it something that we have to deal with in 2023. Anyone with half a decent level of concern for an employee wouldn't have made them work in enormously high temperatures with an, a vehicle not equipped with appropriate cooling. It is not that you're not making health and safety your priority. You are torturing your own employees just to make a little more profit. It's the name of the game in capitalism. 
And that's why the unions have to understand they can block this ploy today and that ploy tomorrow. Yeah, they can undo the two-tier system if they hold together. But as they are doing it, the paid lawyers, accountants, and economists on the payroll of UPS will be figuring out the next ploy to use to screw the workers out of something that might have cost the company a nickel. The profits of UPS have gone through the roof. The pandemic and afterwards were sources of enormous new business, new profits. They don't want to share anything. Their offer that they're going to make now is not going to set them back significantly, and it's not going to help the workers at best to stay even with inflation. In other words, the class struggle is what's going on, and all you have are the employers and the people they pay who try to suggest that something other than an ugly class struggle, profits for the few versus a decent standard of living for the many. And the air conditioning fiasco they talk about and the two-tier system are just chapters in that sad book. Richard, Karl Marx was a, a principal leader of what was called the First International, the International Working Men's Association, which was formed in the 1860s. And it became the first effort, at least within Europe, to sort of find a way to build solidarity between workers in different parts of the country because the employers, using all of the devices, all of the tricks at their disposal, if a group of workers struck in one country, the bosses, the employers, would bring in workers from another country who would scab on the strike. And so as purely a defensive measure against a reduced standard of living, the international set for itself the goal, not of really socialist revolution, but basic core worker solidarity. In other words, not having two tiers in Europe so that if workers struck one place, some other group of employers wouldn't take advantage by hiring scabs. In the course of those couple of years from 1864, when the international was formed until its essential dissolution following the, the Paris Commune's defeat in 1871, Marx made a series of lectures to workers. They're in the pamphlets. People can find them, Value, Price, and Profit, or Wage, Labor, and Capital. These are lectures that were aimed at working-class folks who were part of that international. And they're very, very interesting, very basic in terms of Marx's own thinking. But it shows that Marx is not simply a political economist. He is a fighter for the working class. He's an organizer with the working class. The big argument at that time, I, I'll just read the first sentence of Value, Price, and Profit. He says, before entering into the subject matter, allow me to make a few preliminary remarks. There reigns now on the continent, that's Europe, a real epidemic of strikes and a general clamor for a rise of wages. And this question will turn up at our Congress. And then, Richard, he goes over and tries to answer because it's all very new, the formation of unions. The employers are saying if the wages go up or if the workday diminishes, that's going to be the end of your job because those are the ways that we make profit. And if we can't make profit, we won't be able to do business. And Marx is trying to show the workers because they don't yet fully know whether it's true or not. 
the class consciousness had not yet quite developed. The lessons of class struggle weren't that mature yet. And Marx is telling them that's not true. The problem isn't that the profits will go away. The problem is our struggle isn't strong enough. But if we fight harder, you'll see that the capitalists can diminish the workday and they can raise your wages and they can stay in, in business. And of course, that was very elementary at the time. But it's not an unimportant lesson even for us today, 170 years later. Again, people need to read Marx and they need to think about the tactics and strategies that Marx and Engels and later other revolutionaries advocated because they're key even to basic labor struggle. Yeah, the, the way I would put it is the following. If you stay with the capitalist system, if you limit yourself, whether you're a political activist or a labor union activist, if you limit your struggle to trying to get a better deal within capitalism, what Marx is saying there is you are thereby accepting really bad limits on what you can get. You're going to be able to get a reform here or a reform over there, but you're not going to get the kind of breakthrough you need and want because the system will never stop. Since profit is the game, if the employer can't get the profit one way, he'll get it another. If he can't squeeze your wages, well, then he'll jack up his prices or he'll move production away from you to some cheaper laborer in another country, in another region, or he'll substitute a machine that will do your work and cost him less than paying you. It never stops. That's the history of three centuries of capitalism. It has never stopped. And when the employers really feel themselves pressed, that's when they harden what they do and resist more and come up with multiple strategies. Look what they're doing now. They're trying to hold back wage increases. Meanwhile, they're pushing for immigration of people who may come here and work for lower money, or they're pushing to export jobs to where the cheaper workers are, on and on. They're working in Washington to get the regulations removed so they don't have to care if they pollute the air or the water or the ground, or they can stop being regulated for health and safety, stop being regulated. It never stops. And that's what Marx meant. It's a class struggle. If you don't want to always be a worker on the wrong end of employers' profit-maximizing strategy, then you've got to change the system. Yeah, that's a bigger lift. That's harder to do. But if you don't do it, you're always backpedaling or trying desperately to keep up. This 32% increase that the dock workers got is going to keep them barely up with inflation. And they're a tough, strong union, able and willing to strike, and they've shown it many times. Most unions in this country don't even have that strong a history. The reason folks like us bring up system change is not because we have some abstract ideological goal. It's because the working class, if it is ever going to advance itself, has to change a system. Otherwise, each time it struggles, it may get a reform that will be undone in time for the next struggle to begin. You have to admire that they struggle after all of this, 
but you have to shake your head in disappointment that they keep limiting what they struggle for in a way that then comes back to haunt them. And of course, even in limited struggles, workers learn important lessons about the class struggle. The more naive workers who think, hey, the bosses and we can be friends, learn in the course of that struggle that that's not the case. So while it's a limited struggle, it also is an important struggle, not only for workers in terms of their living conditions, but lessons learned. That is, if the labor movement orients in a class struggle direction. I want to I want to end, Richard, with one last point, and it's kind of a digression, but I want to get your thoughts because... When I saw the article, it was the top of the front page of the Sunday edition of the New York Times, the newspaper of record. I thought, I got to ask Richard Wolf about this. I don't know if you've seen the article. I'm going to read just a little bit, a paragraph, and then get you to comment, and that'll be our last topic. Here's the headline. Why it seems everything we knew about the global economy is no longer true. While the world's eyes were on the pandemic, China and the war in Ukraine, the paths to prosperity and shared interests have grown murkier. I love the language. Here it is, Richard. When the world's business and political leaders gathered in 2018 at the annual economic forum in Davos, the mood was jubilant. Growth in every major country was on upswing. The global economy, declared the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, was in a, quote, very sweet spot, close quote. Five years later, the outlook has decidedly soured. Quote, nearly all of the economic forces that powered progress and prosperity over the last three decades are fading, the World Bank warned in a recent analysis. Quote, the result could be a lost decade in the making, not just for some countries or regions, as has occurred in the past, but for the whole world. As the dust has settled, it suddenly seemed as if almost everything we thought we knew about the world economy was wrong. The economic conventions that policymakers had relied on since the Berlin Wall fell on more than 30 years ago, the unfailing superiority of open markets, liberalized trade, and maximum efficiency looked to be running off the rails. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the ceaseless drive to integrate the global economy and reduce costs left healthcare workers without face masks, medical gloves, car makers without semiconductors, sawmills without lumber, and sneaker buyers without Nikes. Anyway, Richard, it's kind of like everything we've lied to you about, the world economy, is now so clearly proved to be a lie, we have to act perplexed as if... We really thought that closing down factories in Detroit and sending them places where workers made one-tenth the wage of workers in Detroit was going to always be good for everybody, not just employers, but the entire society. Anyway, I want to get your comment on this, what I consider to be a remarkable, revelatory article at the front page of the New York Times. Well, the problem here is mostly the New York Times. I mean, they are a cheerleader for capitalism. They always have been. It is a number one priority for them. I read the New York Times. I read the business section of it on a regular basis. That's what they are. They don't carry articles that are critical of capitalism. They may have an article critical about this or that detail, but around about the system, no. The system is always great. The system is never the problem. And then they go even further. 
every time there's a touchdown, as in a football game, they cheer the system, not realizing that, you know, if you look a little more closely, yeah, we got a touchdown, but we lost two of our major players in that touchdown, which means the rest of the game is not going to go so well. No, 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 they they don't want to do that. They are the cheerleaders in, in there. Everything is really sweet. There were plenty of people at the time of the last Davos meeting myself included, who are making lots of public appearances, writing lots of articles, and I'm not the only one, I was one of many, who are pointing out the flaws, the failures, the contrary evidence, they chose to ignore all that. They chose to ignore it internally, they chose to ignore it in terms of acknowledging what critics were saying. It's a terrible problem of the United States, this, this desire to keep repeating stories that are out of date now by decades. I mean, let me give you two examples. In the year 2020, the total output of goods and services produced by the G7, that's the United States, its major European allies, plus Japan and Canada. That used to be the dominant economic block for the most of the last half century. The total output of goods and services, the GDP of the G7 was equalized by the total output of the BRICS nations, China and its allies, Russia, India, Brazil, and South Africa. Today, in 2023, the total output of goods and services by the BRICS has gone up to 33%, and the total output of the G7, US and its allies, has fallen to 29%. In other words, we no longer live in the old world. The capitalist system, globally speaking, has been outflanked by the BRICS, who are now the dominant economic bloc. And you know what that means? Every little country in Asia, Africa, and Latin America has a new partner to think about working with. They don't have to work with Western Europe, the United States, and Japan. They can work with India and China. It's a bigger economic partner, offering better deals and better terms. The United States is on a downward trajectory. Its empire and its economic prowess have peaked, and they've peaked years ago. The only reason this is shocking to people is because we live in a country which practices denial. I mean, it is really amazing. A few weeks ago, the Oxfam Group in England did a survey of working conditions in the 38 countries of the OECD. The United States ranks at the bottom, 36, 32, 38, when it comes to wages, when it comes to working conditions, when it comes to worker protections against occupational health and safety risks, against sexual harassment, when it comes to paid leave, we're at the bottom. We're not at the top. We're not even in the middle. We're at the bottom of the 38 richest, most developed economies in the world. But American political leaders keep on talking like we're the biggest and the best in the world. They're talking 40 years too late. And now the American people, having not been talked to honestly about what the situation is, are having doubts and worries. And the New York Times, late as always, carries an article saying, gee, things weren't as rosy as we once told everybody they were. 
Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.